0: Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of June 14th, 2019. I'm Charles Hain, tech nerd at No Film School.
1: I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School.
0: And this week we're going to be talking about Chernobyl. We're going to be talking about one of, or probably the youngest director to premiere at Tribeca. We're going to talk a little bit more about Apple's releases at WWDC last week. All that tech news and Ask No Film School and probably a little bit of witty banter this week on the No Film School podcast. Hey, everybody. The week of June 14th, 2019, No Film School podcasts Again, George and Charles and the first story this week we're talking about and... Yes, we know we're talking about it a week late, but we both have kids, so we don't get to watch things as quickly as everybody else gets to watch (laughs) things, but we have to talk about it because, frankly, it is the TV event of the year, much more so than I think Game of Thrones ended up being in the end, and that is Chernobyl, the five-episode miniseries on HBO. So if you haven't seen it, it is a five-episode miniseries. It's written by Craig Mazin. If you don't know who Craig Mazin is, he's most famous for being Ted Cruz's... College roommate. That's actually not true. He's a famous <laughs> writer who's written many, many things and he's very, very good and you should watch Chernobyl and appreciate his artistry. He was also Ted Cruz's college roommate. So Chernobyl is a classic HBO miniseries style show. Yes, we're in the middle of peak TV and we're seeing a whole lot of like very new stuff that's happening in new forms. But this is actually really classic HBO. It reminded me of some of the original like 90s uh, HBO stuff. It is very much about like big themes and telling a true life story and a lot of things that like I really associate with very classic uh, storytelling and the cinematography and directing is phenomenal but it is really the script that drives the whole thing this screenwriting is just astounding some of you screenwriters out there are probably going to object a little bit there are a few scenes where they definitely speak the theme aloud if you don't know what we mean uh you know every script every good script has some sort of theme or point or like overarching thing it's trying to say. If you hit it too hard on the head, it can, you know, there's a spectrum of how articulately you want to say the theme, right? If you're making an after-school special, and those of you who are really young won't remember these, (laughs) but back in the 80s, they used to have these after-school specials. And like on a a zero to 10, like zero would be, no one could ever possibly guess or understand what the point was. And 10 is, you are saying the theme aloud. After-school specials would definitely say the theme aloud of like, gee, Tommy, maybe you shouldn't try drugs. Um, I think
1: that the zero on that would be something like Ulysses. Yes. I think when we're talking about things like a TV show or a miniseries, the idea isn't to obfuscate theme. Uh, you want to put that out there. People want to be able to figure out what something's about. So to me, Chernobyl doesn't hide its... And look, you can uh, read about on, on No Film School, you can read about... Uh, a lot of the screenwriting and I don't know pr- correct pronunciation of his name, Craig Mazin. But he has done a podcast with um, script notes and uh, it's just dissecting how they put this thing together. And one of the coolest things about the story, uh, the, the making of, is that his screenwriting resume, let's go over a couple of the things he's written. There's There's been a meme going around about this too. He wrote Hangover Part 2. Hangover Part Three, Huntsman Winter's War, uh, Rocket Man, uh, Scary Movie Three, Scary Movie Four, Superhero Movie. The reason this is funny is because these are broad comedies, to put it mildly, and not in the same Subgenre or vein or spirit as this devastating, depressing, nightmarish uh, HBO miniseries, and yet he has pulled this thing off beautifully, like you said. Writers and and creatives are capable of so much more, and there's their range may be so much greater than we think because the opportunities uh, may not have allowed them to stretch their wings. This is know?
0: clearly one of those things of like. A talented writer who was maybe not always booking jobs to their full potential getting a real, like, grind about a specific subject and doing a lot of the research. Also, I want to say, like, this is not a 10 on the scale of spelling out the theme. On a 0 to 10, this is like a 5. Oh, yeah. It is yeah, very yeah. much a, like, here is the theme. We are laying it out for you. But the characters are very finely drawn and so engaging. And specifically, Stellan Skarsgård and Jared Harris, as a scientist and a bureaucrat dealing with the crisis, are so well-crafted and have such great arcs. And the reveals are so rewarding when they come. Everyone in life has been tasked with cleaning up someone else's mess. And there's just this beautiful way in which, like, they just get to it. Where they're like, all right, here's the mess and we're in it and it's such a human thing where you're like all right well that's the mess if we don't clean it up no one is it's a very engaging character trait they share where they just get to it
1: it's something that really happened it changed uh it changed the course of history certainly it, it arguably devastating- brought
0: down the soviet union in in some ways like it certainly yeah. was so financially costly for the soviet union it made it difficult to continue
1: and it was i i think you could say part and parcel of a lot of the problems Uh, Going on, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about that first episode, I can't believe all these first responders, for example, all these people didn't immediately know how awful it was to see an accident at a nuclear power plant. And I suspect on some level, that's the suppression of information. Um, but on another level, uh, I think it just changed the world in terms of our knowledge of what kind of dangers these things posed.
0: I am old enough and you're old enough to remember the USSR feeling like, an, you know, we we played as kids on the playground that we were in fighter jets shooting down Ruskies.
1: Yeah. That's and what, yeah.
0: <laughs> they were the big dark bad guy and they had this accident. Like I was in rural Illinois at the time and I definitely remember it as being like, that's terrible. But I also remember like sort of a sub text of like, well, yeah, but, you know, never happen in America because we're better.
1: I think there's still always a, well, it's not going to happen and it's not, it's not going to happen here or it's not, there's reasons that could never happen. But look, Flint, Michigan doesn't have clean water. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which it's about how a government handles a disaster, how a government communicates with its people, and what news is real or fake, not to bring up that thing, but that... Well, no, uh, I mean, it is
0: about what, like, it was originally inspired by fake news and our changing relationship with truth, and, like, that's the thing, is, like, every historical movie is always a commentary on the time in which it's made. Right. So like you, you look at Lawrence of Arabia and Lawrence of Arabia is very much about like some events in the 1920s, but it is also really about America in the 1950s and 60s and England. And like those issues are playing out. And like, you know, I suspect that they are very comfortable with the fact that Chernobyl is very much about Chernobyl and Kiev and Pripyat in the 80s and Moscow, but it is also very much about. What is happening in the world today, facts, the way in which they're communicated, the way in which the facts are manipulated in order to present the truth that powerful people want, as opposed to actual ground, factual truth, is a really powerful theme in this story. Yeah. I mean, we have to comment on the cinematography, the directing and the acting and the (laughs) music. It's. Phenomenal. And also what's super amazing and sort of interesting is that like in Lithuania, there is uh, Chernobyl had a sister nuclear power plant that is still standing. So they were able to shoot in Lithuania at a power plant that looks very much like Chernobyl did uh, that was recently decommissioned by the EU. And in Lithuania, there are also freestanding apartment blocks. Now, there's some historical inaccuracies, but like you you're still watching it the whole time. And you're just, like, flabbergasted that this world still exists to shoot in. I mean, honestly, until I did the research after the show, I was convinced—because I don't watch the making of episodes as they go. I wanted to wait until the end to watch them. I was convinced Mm -hmm. a lot of it was CGI. There is some CGI in the explosions and whatnot. But even that is so, you know— Understated. It's so understated, and it's so
1: good. I heard someone say, I envy anybody who hasn't started it yet. like get into it, enjoy it. it's it's masterful work. And I would also just add it is one oddly enough, it is about Chernobyl, but it is 100% about America right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. all
1: right well, that's a great conclusion and a good time to pivot to topic number two. One of the big posts in the last week was an interview with Philip Yeoman's who wrote, directed, and shot Burning Cane, a Tribeca-winning debut feature. And here's the crazy thing. He was 16 years old when he got started on this. So a teenager who won Tribeca with his first narrative. uh, And, you know, the story just kind of gets crazier from there. Uh, We have an interview up on the site with him about it people have loved it largely because this is you know this is one of those stories that's proof that you can just say hey I want to make this movie I want to tell this story I have access to a camera and I don't need a whole lot more um and he pulled it off and winning Tribeca is uh winning the narrative competition is quite an achievement and um So, one of the things that I would highlight about this is that he shot it, he wouldn't reveal the budget, but he said it was less than uh, Blair Witch. And he shot it with about two to three other people uh, in 18 days with five days of pickups. Um, He had help in casting. Wendell Pierce played the lead, who uh, you'd probably remember from The Wire, among other things. Um, But you know they they got an Airbnb. they went out to a rural part of Louisiana and they shot this movie and uh, the movie is a I guess a personal story to some extent, but it's something that had sort of uh, represent representative of his experience um, uh, with religion and it's uh you know haven't seen the movie yet, but the story is amazing and I think it's again a testament to we we live in a time where you can. With just your phone, really, you can go out and you can shoot a feature and you don't need a whole lot. And he got help finishing in post. He contacted uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild director Ben Zetlin, who was a fan of his ideas and his work and helped him get access to post-production facilities. So these things don't ever really happen without bringing on certain names. It's, it's harder if you can't, but uh, it's still a great story. And I think that. The- but it's
0: not like he had like a family connection to Ben Zetlin. He literally cut a trailer from his footage and sent it to Ben Zetlin on Instagram, and Ben Zetlin checks his "I don't know you" messages on Instagram, which like good for him because I don't check those messages. That's uh, a really good point. Yes. But like he-, he checks it. He liked the little sizzle trailer that was cut together and responded to an Instagram. Like he slid into Ben inst- Ben Zetlin's DMs, <laughs> in, in to talk in internet speak. Uh, One thing I want to point out about this and also uh, Xavier Grobet, the French-Canadian director, who also made a feature. I think he made his feature at 18. So a little little old, a little long in the tooth for his debut feature compared to this guy. (laughs) But um, I really want to give a shout out in both cases. Both stories involved some intervention from high school teachers. High school teachers don't always get the appreciation they deserve. But in both these cases, students in their high school classes wrote something that had something in it that was like real and interesting and engaging. And in both cases, some form of mentorship and encouragement came from that high school teacher. Uh,
1: He was in a a film program at the new Orleans center for creative arts, but yeah, he had a story he wrote a script and uh, I guess it was like for a short um, and he never shot it. Um, And The teacher said, you should make this a feature, and in his own words, he became obsessed with the idea of doing that.
0: I can't give a shout out to high school arts teachers without giving a shout out to Ruth Fishman, Richard Montgomery art teacher in the 90s and the 2000s, very encouraging to me in my early progress, gave me a compliment that was so complimentary I initially thought she was kidding. Um, and like I still think about it 20 years later because it's had a big influence in a lot of the direction of my career. So thank you, Ruth Fitchman, and all of you high school arts teachers who are encouraging a wide variety of voices. Uh, I cannot wait until this film is publicly available so I can give it a look. I hear nothing but good things from people uh, from from the buzz. All right. Up next, yes, we talked about the new Mac Pro last week, and we totally covered it. But what we didn't really talk about in detail last week in the new Mac Pro is we didn't talk about the monitor, the new XDR monitor. So the Mac Pro, $6,000, I 100% support its price. They also rolled out a $5,000 monitor. This monitor doesn't come with a stand, and you need to buy a $1,000 stand, and we'll talk about that last, because holy shit. (laughs) So one of the big problems of being a filmmaker is you work really hard and maybe you're even in a color suite and you're working really hard and you're on like a, a Flanders DM250, a, a, one of the best monitors out there, $25,000 monitor. It's beautiful. You know exactly what it looks like. It's, it's like perfect on that monitor. And then you take it home and you look at it on your iMac in a QuickTime file or VLC and it looks totally different. Then let's say you're working with like a client or a producer or you're emailing it to Ben Zedlin. Uh, Or DMing it, because you guys are the kids. Um, And then it looks totally different there than it does, than it did on that beautiful Flanders DM250 that you were working at in your post facility. This drives filmmakers insane. We should be excited about this monitor from Apple. But is it going to fix this? Is it going to make it so it looks the same? And, like, they put up a slide of a $40,000 Sony reference monitor, and they were like, we looked at these as benchmarking, and we wanted to compare and we wanted this to be reference quality. And yet it makes me super nervous for a couple of reasons. One big reason is that it doesn't have a professional quality connection. It's connected by T3 Thunderbolt DisplayPort, which is fine for computer graphics. The problem with computer graphics is that they're so different every piece of software that makes it. VLC makes your footage look one way, QuickTime Player makes it look a different way. In Resolve or in Premiere or in Media Composer or in Final Cut 10, the footage all looks different because of the way the software is showing your video. So even if you have the best monitor in the world, like if I took that Flanders DM250, man, Flanders is not a sponsor, but they totally should be for how often I'm mentioning them in this thing. But regardless, (laughs) if I took that Flanders DM250 and I like hooked it up to the computer by HDMI so it was getting graphics, it would have the same problem. VLC and QuickTime Player would all look different. You need to look at a video signal which is why we all use like mini monitor outputs to give us an SDI video signal or, a you know, Blackmagic Intensity or Decklink, or any of those to give us a video signal. Because Media Composer, Blackmagic Media Express, uh, all of those pieces of software use that box to send out a video signal and the video signal will always look the same. Now, Mm. Blackmagic already has the Blackmagic Teranex, which we also did an article about, which is specifically designed for this, which, like, is Thunderbolt on one end and DisplayPort on the other, and it gives you, like, video scopes and an accurate signal. So combining this $6,000 monitor with this $1,500 box for about $7,500, you can set it up properly so it's getting a real video signal, and you can use the Teranex box for upscaling and downscaling and to get your on-screen video scopes and all that stuff. So for about $7,500, you can make it a true reference monitor. But here's the problem. I'm imagining a scenario where I have a very rich client, which happens sometimes. You know, you're working on commercials, you're working on music videos, and the client has spent $15,000 getting this Apple XDR monitor and the Mac Pro. And then I email them a link to the work. And for whatever reason, they open it up on their thing and it looks wildly different on their monitor because they're using, who knows, they're looking at it in something where the software makes it look differently. It's going to look wildly different there than it did even if I had the same setup, but I used the black magic box to give it video signal. So identical monitors, but the image looks different because of software. That client (laughs) is going to call me and they're going to be like, yo, it looks way too bright. And, I, and I'm gonna be like, oh, well, your monitor might not be right. And they're gonna say, no, man, I paid $6,000 for this Apple monitor. It's reference quality. It's totally right. They're fair to say that. They're spending $6,000. Now, my hope beyond hopes is that Apple has a plan for the software problem. The thing Apple's always done really well is software hardware integration. So are they gonna make it so QuickTime Player and Final Cut 10 look accurate so that they look the same? And the biggest clue that this might be happening Was that at the demo, they had Resolve set up and they had Resolve set up running at the demo in full screen mode with your UI on one screen and full screen on the other. And as far as I know, they didn't have the Blackmagic Teranex doing it. It was a dual screen Resolve set up with the UI on one, full screen on the other, which Resolve doesn't normally let you do really. I mean, you can, but it was like a, it was a distinct moment where it was like, oh, have they done something in the software OS level to make it so that they'll look the same? Honestly, if it just matched between Final Cut, Media Composer, Fun, uh, QuickTime Player and Resolve, I would be happy. There's some other interesting things about this monitor that confuse me. So like it's got 1600 nit peak brightness and 1000 nit continuous brightness, which is great. But I don't know about you, but if this is if I'm using this for UI user interface, I'll have it what, like three feet from my face? Like I've got a twenty-seven-inch monitor in my office at my standing desk, it's it's probably thirty inches from my face. I don't want a 1000 nits thirty inches from my face. Like when I think about a thousand-nit monitor, I want to be like twelve feet away. It's on the other side of the room. I imagine what's interesting about this monitor is that most people will turn the brightness down a
1: lot. <laughs> so I get get up pretty close. Not that I'm in the market for this thing. I'm more than three feet. I'm closer than three feet.
0: Yes. Um, no, I mean I have to work really hard. I have a big, complicated like treadmill desk with a split kinesis keyboard and a, my monitor on an arm stand and stuff. Like I, I have to work really hard to get the monitor that far. Can you? Most people uh, can you
1: share a picture. I will of totally your setup? tweet out a picture it sounds, of my it ridiculous. Sounds pretty bit.
0: awesome, dude. I think it's the future. Anybody who wants to start a treadmill desk business with me? Talk to me. I hired an engineer. The treadmill is controlled by my computer by an app. We used Arduino. Totally want to bring this to scale. Regardless.
1: Wait a. S- uh, I, okay, we have to talk about that at some point. That's fascinating.
0: <laughs> but regardless, so the other thing that is weird about this monitor, and this is something actually that uh, Juan Salvo flagged, thank you, Juan, was that, so like that $40,000 Sony monitor has individual pixel dimming. So there's a backlight on monitors. Everybody or most people understand there's a backlight on a monitor. So you've got like the sort of front element that creates the color and you've got a backlight that makes brightness. Each individual pixel in the $40,000 Sony monitor has an individual dimming zone. So that million or billion pixels or whatever can be turned brighter or darker by that individual pixel dimming. Apple was really excited that they have 512 dimming zones. The problem with 512 dimming zones is that that means there's 35,000 pixels per dimming zone because it's a 6K monitor. Well, why is that a problem for filmmakers? So let's say I'm working on a project and it's like, a, I'm doing a sword and sorcery thing. And I've got a character and they're like walking out of a cave, carrying a sword. And a little glint of light is on that sword. And it's like a four pixel glint of light, right? And, and, and they're walking out of cave. So they're surrounded by inky darkness, holding a sword with this glint of light. On, on the $40,000 Sony monitor, there's going to be no halo around that light it's gonna be just four pixels are super bright, surrounded by beautiful inky darkness. On the XDR monitor, that whole zone is gonna to have to dim up to create the amount of brightness for that glint of light, which means a 35,000 pixel zone is gonna be brighter. Now, it doesn't mean like a square is gonna be brighter. There's all sorts of algorithms attempting to smooth it out, but you're gonna get a little glowing halo around that highlight bright spot. Now, why is this a problem? It's a problem for two reasons. One, it's going to be annoying, but two, if you make decisions based on that halo, it's going to affect your creative process. You're going to, as a colorist or editor or whoever, you're going to turn down the brightness to try and get rid of that halo. So all of a sudden, you're making a creative decision because of a technological limitation. For $7,500, it's sitting in a weird price point. There is one thing, and I get accused on Twitter and the internet's in the comment section all the time of being a big Apple defender. I actually feel like I'm reasonably balanced about Apple. Uh, I think they make really great equipment and occasionally misstep. But I tell you the one thing I cannot defend, which is the $1,000 stand. I have no idea what the plan is there, especially because when I first heard there's a $1,000 stand, here's what I thought they were doing. Because So the stand flips the monitor from horizontal to vertical, right, which is a thing that like. Dell has been doing for 10 years, and I don't really know any filmmakers who do it, but I know a lot of graphic designers who do it, who have like their main screen and then like their bins in the right-hand one and it flips up and down. It's a common thing. There are monitors that do it. They do not have a $1,000 stand. It's doable, but the problem with that flip is that you're always running cables to the monitor. And so when you do the flip, sometimes you got to like reach back a hand and make sure that the cables are moving properly and all that Mm. stuff. And so when I first heard there's a thousand dollar stand, I was like, Holy shit. Do you just plug the cable into the bottom of the stand? And then the stand runs the signal up to the monitor. So when you flip it from horizontal to vertical, it just does it naturally and organically. And there's no problem. That's what I was excited about. I was like, Oh, a thousand dollars seems pricey for that. But if it does it like that, I guess I get where they're coming from. The stand doesn't even do that. You still have to run a cable to the monitor. So when you flip from horizontal to vertical, you still have to make sure the cable not catching on anything. I'm mixed on the XDR. I have no idea what $1,000 is paying for with that stand. I don't think anyone does. I have a $700 HP monitor that I bought new. It's 27 inches. It's hooked up with DisplayPort. I use it with my laptop. It's sitting on my thing. 700 bucks, whole monitor, perfectly acceptable. And it's great, and I'm holding it with like a $50 Visa mount stand that Wirecutter recommended that clips onto my desk. Just
1: make sure it doesn't fall off while you're treadmilling, that's my concern now. That's all I can think about. All right,
0: so we have one story for us this week in tech news and that is Neat Video has just come out with revision number five. So what is Neat Video, you ask? Well, right now a lot of software you buy comes with noise correction plugins. Resolve has noise correction built in in the studio version for $300. And what noise correction does is it analyzes the shot and it tries to figure out what's picture information and what's noise and it tries to remove the noise. Noise correction is a very common process these days. However, even though it's built into Resolve and a lot of color grading apps, Actually, it wasn't even originally a plug-in, like back in the 80s and 90s, it was a physical piece of hardware. It then moved to plugins, and there's a bunch of popular noise correction plugins. My favorite for the longest time, and actually one that I continue to keep in my palette, even though I own Resolve Studio, is Neat Video. So Resolve is a built-in hmm. noise corrector, and I use it a lot of times. However, Neat Video was always sort of the magic pocket trick that everybody always had. It was like one of those things that you talk to other like freelance editors, freelance posties, freelance DPs, and like uh, almost everybody would have found a shot where they needed to buy neat video at some point. Um, And it's a really sophisticated, really powerful noise correction plugin that I think people should look at, especially since if you're not using Resolve, it plugs into After Effects, it plugs into Premiere, it plugs into Media Composer. Now, Revision 5 has a couple of big improvements. One is Flickr. And one thing you'll notice a lot in noise is noise will sometimes have a flicker, especially if there's any kind of flicker in the scene or with certain kind of sensors. So they've really improved flicker algorithms. They've also really worked on optimizing GPU and CPU performance. Because the one thing I will say about Neat Video is it was always really slow. That is part of the process with Neat Video. It is very sophisticated, but it's very processor hungry. I haven't had a chance to test Neat Video 5 yet, but all of the big announcement is built around we have, we have been working on speeding it up both faster on GPU and CPU. And obviously that's really exciting because a lot of us have machines with underpowered GPUs. If you have the new Mac pro, you have all the GPU power in the world, but if you're out there on a laptop, you know, especially if you're in like a 13 inch MacBook pro, the CPU is really going to be the most powerful thing you have. You don't have a lot of GPU power there. They're also working on CPU performance, which is really going to benefit the other filmmakers out there that are working on laptops that might not have a big powerful GPU. So that is Neat Video 5, which is out now, and that is the tech news for this week. All right, and up next, Ask No Film School. Candace Beck asks, I'm really thinking of trying to get into the whole editing video remotely game. I landed my first international client two months ago for creating intros for video. It was super enjoyable, got me thinking maybe I should try to get into editing in general. What should I do? Should I sign up on Fiverr? Um, this is a really great question because we are entering this weird world where a lot of work is remote. One of my biggest clients, I only met in person because I sought them out once when I was in LA, but I landed them as a client after I moved to New York, even though they're an LA based client. And, you know, once I was in LA, I was like, Hey, we've been working together two years. Maybe we should meet. Um, I w I do want to say I'm still the world's biggest believer that real work happens in person. The difference between an editing session Like if I'm cutting a narrative project, I want to sit with my editor for eight hours in person watching footage, looking at alternate takes. You know, every once in a while you hear this thing where it's like, oh, the director will do a cut and the editor will do a cut and then we'll watch them both together and we'll talk about what to pull from each. And I think that's such a waste of time because in that same time, if the editor and the director were in the room together... The director could be like, ooh, I like this idea. And the editor could be like, I like this idea. And the director could be like, ooh, let's take that and let's go three steps further with that idea. And then can I see the alternate takes from this one line? And like, it's this organic conversational process. I also think beyond real work happening in person, real work happens at lunch. You spend four hours editing in the morning and then you guys go to lunch together and you're sitting in the break room or you're out at a restaurant and you're like, and then you have this magic idea of you're like, ooh, what if this scene wasn't the ending? It was the opening. That's really for like narrative- work where you shot a tremendous amount of footage and there's all these takes to go through. For smaller projects, for corporate projects, for certain kind of doc projects, for even certain music video projects, there's actually real workflows now for doing interesting collaborative work remotely. And I think that we're starting to see between Frame.io and Whipster and a whole bunch of other tools, there is real cool work being done remotely. I'm going to keep saying narrative work Director and editor, let's get in a room together. But Let me ask
1: you something, though. How did you get connected with the client who you met, who you work for remote?
0: Well, they were someone I knew in L.A., and that is actually the next thing we should talk about. How do you find these remote clients? Because that L.A. client was a friend of mine from L.A. who recommended me to something. They Mm -hmm. heard about it, and they recommended me, and this was a person I'd already known. So the problem with trying to find the remote clients is film is this weird market you know, I, I have a friend who works in software development, and he always likes to joke about how software development is the opposite of film. In film, there's, like, 20 jobs, and then there's, like, 200 people who want them. In software development, there's, like, 200 jobs and 20 people willing to do it. Um <laughs> So, you know, the, the market is much different. So the competition is much different. And so it's going to be a slow process to build up remote clients. I'm not saying it's impossible. I totally think you should do it. But one thing you're going to realize is like, you know, Craigslist still has a lot of activity. Mandy.com, Staff Me Up, Reality Jobs, all of these places still have a lot of activity. Like if you ever post a job on one of those job sites, you will see 100 people will apply within an hour. And more so, people
1: than you can ever actually reasonably look through.
0: First off, you always try and hire someone you've met in person. I would say 70% of my work is remote work right now. But other than that one client in LA, the vast majority of them, I met them in person first, and then it just moves to remote work eventually.
1: Your Los mm- Angeles client also makes sense from the standpoint of you meet people, you get referrals. That's referrals. an easy way. When, when we're looking for someone, instead of going through hundreds or yeah. more uh, of like cold submissions we will go by who we know and who they recommend.
0: However, I have gotten a few jobs over the years remotely on Mandy and Craigslist and a few other places. The thing I can say is be as fast as possible on the job application. Like be in that first pile of people. Like use an RSS reader like Feedly, which I'm sure many of you use to to read um you no know, film school, but you can also set up those RSS readers to do job searches, right? Um, so you're not that's going great
1: advice.
0: to all of that's those sites. Advice. You're seeing this stuff. And as soon as it pops up, apply and make your application as simple and as professional as possible. You know, when I'm looking at editors, let's say if I'm clicking through 100 emails, every email I get from someone that's like, I'm a DP slash editor slash DIT, I move on to the next one. I'm hiring editors. Send me an editing website. I want to be able to look at just one thing. You want to make it so mm. painfully easy for me to hire you. So like have an email address that's your name. Every once in a while, I get email addresses in like the name field where it should say Candace Beck says something like Star Warrior 44. <laughs> it, it means that if I try and search for your thing in a week when I'm like, ooh, Candace was good. Let me search my Gmail for Candace. I'm going to skim my emails and I'm not going to see your email because I'm never going to remember your Star Warrior 44. Um, And then have a website that's really easy to remember and have links on the website that are really curated and good for editorial and show me work that that is coherent and strong. And that's how you start building remote clients. Um, It takes a long time. Remote clients are a long process, but you can totally build up a pretty robust um, world of remote work by doing that. And then you say in uh, the longer version of your post that you live sort of in the woods. Or not in the woods. You say you live near no large towns. I guess it could also be the beach. Um, Go to the film (laughs)
1: events.
0: (laughs) Go to Sundance. Go to Tribeca. If you're in Europe, go to um, Cannes. Go to Berlin. Go to them. You know, it'll seem annoying, but it's also kind of fun. And you will meet people there. So go to them. And I would
1: say, go to the big ones like that. But what I've learned is that... Yeah, if you go to like a sl- if you go out to Park City, you should probably go to Slam Dance cuz that's yes. a very collaborative like like up and coming like people who are looking to make connections to work on stuff.
0: Absolutely. That is that is great advice. All right. So, that is another week on uh the No Film School podcast. Don't forget if you have a question for Ask No Film School, you can check it out on the boards or you can email Asknofilmschool.com. If you want more tech news, there's a podcast I host called The Week in Film Tech, which is full of all sorts of tech news stories. You can also uh continue to read all of these articles at nofilmschool.com. You can also sign up for our mailing list where we send out a mailing reminder of the podcast, which will have links to all the things we covered. So a lot of options to stay in touch.
1: Also remember, I think for emailing us questions, ask at nofilmschool.com. Like us oh, yeah. and subscribe to the podcast. Like us and
0: subscribe to us. I'm at Charles Hayne on Twitter.
1: I'm at George Edelman on Twitter. All right. Well,
0: we will see you guys all next week on the No Film School podcast.